Amen. Well, we're going to be in uh, two passages. Primarily, we'll be in John 4. Uh, the message tonight is Messiah at midday, the Samaritan woman at the well. But uh, in order to be in John 4 really well, I think we need to um, take a little time in 2 Kings 17. Um, so if you'll start turning there um, and be patient. We've got a decent amount of background, but I promise we'll get to John 4. Um, we have the John 4 account of the Samaritan woman. Um, it stands alone. It's not a part of the Synoptic Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts that we can see together that are more aligned. That's what Synoptic means, just uh, they're aligned. Um, they're similar events in a similar time frame, but John stands alone. And John um, has his very clear purpose for what he's written and the way he's assembled his gospel, and he buries the lead. He puts it at the end of uh, the book, but in uh, John 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's uh, such a joy to recognize that the account we'll peer into tonight is there for the very purpose of our belief and our entering into life fully as Jesus has intended. But again, in order to do that, uh, an account that involves Samaritans and Jews, um, not our culture, not our history, we do well to wade in a little bit so we get acquainted with what's going on. Otherwise, though we'd still see a beautiful redemptive picture, we'd miss a lot of what Jesus is doing and the magnitude of it. Um, there's lots to say about the Jews and Samaritans. They basically just find each other's faith in, in a monotheistic God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They find each other's faith aberrant. They have a, just a complete um, inability to tolerate one another. And again, we'll miss how offensive that is and how in need of redemption both are if we don't look back a little bit first. And again, I just don't think we can appreciate the gulf that Jesus is about to cross. So if you'll turn to 2 Kings 17, again, bear with me in this. This is difficult, not because it's long, which it kind of is. We're not going to hit every verse, but it's horrific. I mean, it's just an ugly depiction um, of the work the Lord is needing to do, but it's very important in what we're going to spend our time in. So starting in verse 5 of 2 Kings 17, now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in a bunch of cities here that aren't critical for the moment. But the, the Lord is extracting his disobedient people. This is what we're about to read, and he's going to tell us exactly why, as we would expect him to. Verse 7, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Uh, skipping down to the end of seven, they had feared other gods, verse eight, and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made, verse nine. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. 
And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Verse 13, yet uh, the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all my law. Nevertheless, they would not hear. Like the necks of their fathers, they stiffened their necks. Who did not, they didn't believe in the Lord. Verse 15, they rejected his statutes, his covenant, uh, his testimonies. They followed idols, became idolaters, went after the nations who were all around them. You tired yet? This is ugly, very ugly. Verse 16, so they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 18, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which uh, walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. And verse twenty, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, delivered them into the hand of plunderers, until he cast them from his sight. He tore from Israel the house of David and made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Um, on and on and on. Verse twenty-two, the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. Uh, verse 23, the last half. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day, to the day of the writing uh, of this account in 2 Kings. All of that just to say, we wouldn't have the conflict we're gonna peer into had, uh, had Israel been faithful to the Lord. All of the angst and hatred that, that's gonna emanate between these two people flows out of this hideous removal of the people from the land. The passage continues in verse 24. Now we see that Israel is out and what replaces Israel? Then the, and this is, this is just common practice among conquering nations of the time. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Avah, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, the nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Seems like from the, from the beginning, this connection to detail and specifics and the who, what, when, where of how do we stay here was a part of the Samaritans' history. They didn't know. And so the complaint is these lions are killing the people. Uh, in verse 27, uh, the, then the king of Assyria commands, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell. Let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Verse 28, one of the priests whom they'd carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation 
continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. And and it goes on now to name each of these nations and each of their gods. I don't even care to, to cite for you, but every single one of them brought with them exactly what they used to be, regardless of the fact that it didn't keep them from being conquered you know, humiliated and deported. They brought that with, and that's what they chose to worship in this place. Um, So verse 32, so they feared the Lord and from every class appointed themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed them uh, for them in the shrines and the high places. So verse 33, so they feared the Lord yet served their own gods. Verse 34, to this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord nor do they follow their statutes or ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. On and on and on. They didn't obey. Verse 40, they did not obey, but they followed the former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. All that to say, Israel, Judah, and all that the Lord had allowed to be repopulated into this region were short of the mark, right? So offensive to the Lord himself. It's almost as if there's none righteous. No, not one. So over time, these newcomers um, marry and uh, populate the land with those the Jews had left behind. Typically, um, you know, like Daniel and his uh, brethren, the best of the land are removed and those who don't have value, those who are weak or poor or uneducated are left behind. And so these idolatrous people come in and begin to intermarry with whatever is left and this is the state of what becomes the Samaritans. Israel is in exile for quite a while, but as they return, when they rebuild, they specifically, because they find their practice so offensive, they specifically don't involve the Samaritans in any part of the rebuilding of the land. Uh, you are so familiar with the, the New Testament accounts of the, the Jewish religious leadership and how proud they are, how self-righteous they are in their own understanding. You know, we, we see the Pharisee pray thus with himself, I thank God that I'm not like other men. So you can see just a tremendous divide that's coming, right? Two people in the same place with a, just a deep distrust. And I think for the Jewish people in particular, I think the very presence of the Samaritans had to be a constant reminder of their own failing. I think to continue to see them there as you know, half-breed, as they're often referred to, with aberrant religious practice that sort of mirrors the faith of the Hebrew people, but not really at all, I think it was deeply, deeply offensive. Again, the encounter that we're about to read, all of this, I just want us to see just how humanly unlikely this encounter was. Um, you know, Jewish men in Jesus' day and to this day, some still start their day with a prayer that says, I thank God, do you know this one? I thank God that, I'm not, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, that's really complicated because the, the Jews also found the Samaritans lower than Gentiles. So again, the, there's just such angst and opposition here. Um, it's saying something. So again, um, 
the reality is that God has, when you, when you look at the, the two peoples in this region where Jesus is about to minister, the reality from Paul in Romans 11 that God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And thankfully, most of the rest of our story is gonna be about that mercy, right? Um, so just real quickly, what's the effect over time as these two groups kind of diverge? Um, the Samaritans themselves would only hold to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the, the, the first five books. So nothing of the prophets, nothing of poetry. Um, they would, nothing of the history of the Jewish people. All of that they found so aberrant they wouldn't even, so everything that they knew, they only knew from the Pentateuch, plus a bunch of their own aberrant thought. So by necessity, their view of a coming Messiah was a very uh, wilted, a very shriveled, a very atrophied view, right? You can't see the fullness of what the Lord is doing if all you see is those first five books. And then it, again, Jesus' conversation with this woman is going to reveal that she holds hope in Messiah, but what does that word mean when she's expressing it? It's not what we understand. Um, and again, so they're, they're short of what the work of Messiah would be, and they really don't get to see so much that we love and appreciate of the Lord's heart revealed through Scripture. They don't have it. Um, they would have elevated Mount Gerizim in the north, which is where our scene will take place. They elevated that as the place of worship. They found everything that happened in Jerusalem, the Samaritans did, absolutely intolerable, um, they believed that the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood were completely uh, illegitimate. In fact, at one point, I think, it's in, uh, I think it's in 6 AD, the Samaritans actually go up to the temple during Passover and scatter human bones throughout the, the porches and in the temple proper in order to try to desecrate it. So just not a lot of love lost between these two. So again, Jesus' ministry, the timing is always vital of, in what he does. Jesus never rejected Samaritans, though as he sends his 12 out at the, first, at the beginning of the ministry, he's very particular about where they go, right? In, in Matthew 10, it says, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Well, wait, I mean, we're about to read about Jesus in a city of the Samaritans. Is he contradicting himself? No. He, he said... Israel as the priority as he obeys the Father. So he goes first to the house of Israel and presents the gospel. That's where he sends the brothers. Um, again, we see in uh, Luke 9 as Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to offer himself once for all for mankind. Read this account. It reads differently than when you just read it normally. In Luke 9, beginning in 52, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, you know the rest. Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them? But again, I think we typically read past that. They were, the, the Samaritans were so deeply offended because he was going to worship in Jerusalem. So they rejected it completely. They were at odds with that. Again, we know that the Pharisees in their search for ways to insult Jesus, you know, they say, do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? Not flattering. So just absolute um, angst and, and hatred for one another. Um, 
So again, all that to say, thanks for bearing with me, but these two people, these two people groups have history and the scene that's about to unfold here in John 4 is outside of everybody's comfort zone except for Jesus. So turn back with me to John 4 um, and, and I think we're gonna see in this passage, you know, the, the same one who miraculously walks on water, we're gonna see here, he'll also walk over that human separation, the division. He treads across the waves of angst between peoples, right? He, he's occupied with the work of, of the Father, creating one new man, and he's calling us to follow him in that work. And what that means is there's nobody he won't go to, so there's nobody we won't go to. Right? The, the good news that he's bringing, he brings to this Samaritan woman. You'll remember in your readings of John 3, that, in the book of John, that in John 3, just before this account, Jesus has gone to Nicodemus by night. They have a conversation and Jesus explains new birth to him. Jesus hasn't, um, the timing isn't right yet for him to openly confront the Jewish religious leadership, but that's coming but not yet. But he's revealed new birth, and now in this scene in John 4, we're gonna get to see one. Like I, you go right from the concept to like we're drawn into labor and delivery, and we get to watch, I think, a somewhat uncomfortable scene, but we get to be there and see the Lord drawing someone into everlasting life. It's, to me, it's incredible. Um, he exposes, uh, I see it, it's an intimate agony. He exposes her thirst before he quenches it and, we, and we're witnesses to that. Again, he patiently leads her through that and, uh, and helps her see the extent of it. And, and we gotta ask that, you know, right, right at the beginning, any of these application questions, they come to me first, but am I still terribly thirsty? Is my life still a life that's frantically searching for satisfaction? Um, you know, is my, am I the guy rooting through the sock drawer looking for something that matches? Is, it, is there a, a desperation in that? Am I looking for, you know, am I finding that vanity, vanity, all is vanity, everything under the sun is vanity apart from Jesus? And I know that's a humorous picture, but it's not funny if that's your life, is it? If you haven't found your thirst quenched, this account is for you. This is for you to step forward. It's for you to meet with the Lord and have him touch that need in a way that you've never allowed. Again, one of my favorite passages, um, Jesus' power revealed, his patience to unfold mercy is so attractive in this account. Um, gently bringing her not just to brokenness, but also to account for her, for her brokenness, right? And we see Jesus bringing her out of kind of the zombie life that she's got into true life, um, so tender. And then towards the end, we get to see her already step into a new life. There's shoots of new life that we see spring forth just from this brief encounter she has with, it, with Jesus. Again, Jesus told his disciples, Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So when we get to watch him fish like this, I mean, I, I confess I've watched a few fishing videos. You can learn a lot from effective fishermen. And we do well to, to really look at how is Jesus speaking to her? What is on his heart? How does he, how does he give her space to, to open up? And how does he meet her need? 
So, another application thought. Uh, just bear with me. What if, what if we all sought those who were outcast? What if we made space to encounter them in our lives? What if we gave them a place to have those deep needs revealed so that they can be aware of them? And then, what if we shared with them the one who gives living water? Uh, to me, that's what this um, account is so important for. And again, this, was, this became the focus of our prayer Sunday night, if you were here. The Lord, um, just by his spirit, leading our hearts to call out for a greater burden and a greater ability to reach those who are this disconnected from the Father, as disconnected as she is. Okay, John 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Again, this is, you remember that John the baptizer had declared that there, there is one in your midst greater than me. Um, and that's what this moment is. Jesus is ministering in and around Jerusalem long enough to ensure that that reality is becoming clear. But again, it's not time to confront the religious, the religious leadership fully, so he departs. All of these encounters are on his terms. He's not fleeing, he's walking in the Father's timing. But he left Judea and departed to Galilee and he needed to go through Samaria. And, and why? Why did he need to do that? Well, geographically, it's the, it's the right way to go. It's directly on the path from Jerusalem to the Galilee. So it makes sense geographically, but it seems that there's more than that because the, the religious, the pious religious Jewish leadership would often avoid Samaria altogether. They would go the long way through the Jordan Valley. And yet Jesus doesn't. He, he takes this normal travel route and he takes himself to this city. Um, again, it seems Jesus is compelled to have this particular meeting. Um, and, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, he's been compelled to have a particular meeting with you before, hasn't he? for which you rejoice. He, he held a specific appointment in, a, in maybe a difficult time and place in order to reveal himself to you. And that's the beauty of what we get to see here. Verse five, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Again, the Samaritans didn't dwell in all of Samaria, just a, a few of the select cities that were there. Um, Sychar is one of them, and today it would be the modern city of Shechem. Um, there may be a picture of it. I don't know if they got it. it basically, I, the picture is only there because it looks really dry. I wanted you to see something that looked really dry, because it is. Um, just north of um, Mount Gerizim. And, and verse 6 tells us that uh, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And that, that language, the use of language there, sat thus, really does help indicate that it's, he sat just like he was, weary. So it was apparent that he was weary. He wasn't you know, just feeling it, but looking, he, he was weary. Um, 
It's 30 miles north of Jerusalem that he's traveled. He's arriving at midday. Maybe it was a two-day journey. Hard to say. But again, um, Jesus is about to bring new life into an entire city. Um, and, it, and it comes from two, uh, two condescensions he's made. He's, he's chosen to humble himself and tabernacle among us in the first place. Right? He's clothed himself. He's experienced the, the reality of our weakness. And now he's chosen to humble himself and, and experience thirst, right? And, and thirst in a place where he's wading right into this, this conflict, right? This conflicted existence of two people in a really small region who have, you know, a beef about their theology of worship. This is, this is our savior. He, he's not gonna allow that to keep him from proclaiming his heart, his desire to draw all men, to draw all women. So he wades into this. And again, for me, an application, you can just watch while I try to apply this in my life, but I wonder, do I make space in my life to be used this way? Am I willing, am I available to allow maybe even a moment of my own neediness to be something that could be useful in the Lord's hands to open a heart? for his kingdom. Is that how I walk? Is that how I think about my needs? Is that how I think about my day? Would I go as far as to skip a meal with friends, as Jesus is about to, to ensure that I'm available for a vital spiritual conversation? Now, if you told me about it, I probably would. But am I listening closely enough to the spirit that I'm, I'm just ready if he tells me, don't go, stay here, move there? Am I, am I available? And then you're also going to see, I, have to, I come away asking, am I patient enough to enter into controversial conversations with the Holy Spirit still controlling me for his desired end, right? Not to win the argument or carry the theological point, but to draw a parched and thirsty heart to the master. Am I willing to do that? Verse seven, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Again, not just that Jesus is willing to suffer thirst. He's, he's willing to humble himself to ask for water that he created. I don't, I don't know if we you know, really get that. Right? The same one who said he could call 12 legions of angels to his, to his side should he choose to. He humbles himself to ask a, a disliked people group among the Jews, not among Jesus, but among the Jews, a very distasteful people group to meet a need of his. That's very, that's just, that's not like me. Needs to be, but it's not like me. Do we think about that? Do, are we willing to, to allow our needs to be used by the Lord? And so the disciples have departed. We can wonder, did they pass this woman on their way to the city? You know, they're not dozens of ways from the city to the well and the well to, there's just the way. You know, it's, a, it's well-worn. Everybody knows it. They probably passed her on the way. I don't know. What was that encounter like? Hard to say. And verse six tells us that it's the sixth hour. It's 12 noon, middle of the day. There's a lot that's happened scripturally uh, 
at 12 noon in the middle of the day. We won't go into it now, but um, look that up in your spare time. But, but hauling water is an evening or a morning event, right? We have uh, an account, I think it's in uh, Genesis 24, where uh, Abraham's unnamed servant, uh, it's Eleazar, but it's his, his unnamed servant, uh, is going to retrieve a bride uh, for Isaac. And, and it says uh, in 24.11, it says that he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And then he begins to pray and in 13 of Genesis 24, it says, behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. You know, so, so this, this midday water retrieval, you know, I don't know the equivalent, a, a 2 a.m. grocery run. All right, we might laugh and say, well, that's weird, but why is she, why is she getting water at midday, right? We begin to see a little bit about her life. It's a woman, not women. And uh, just as, as you ponder it, the reality is that sin isolates. Sin separates. Now, we don't know a lot of the details for her, even when we hear about her life. We don't know the how. We don't know whether she experienced actual rejection by others and is pushed out because they're aware of her, you know, uh, her questionable life in history or whether just her fear of them knowing and she's maybe chosen to opt out and make herself scarce or, you know, forsake the blessing of community. We don't really know, but I, I will tell you this. Sinful brokenness makes lives awkward. It just, I don't know, maybe you haven't realized that, but it does. Whether it's in my life or your life or the life of someone Jesus is sending you to reach. And, and my, the question for me is, am I prepared? In, in my heart, am I prepared to press past that awkwardness in order to reach, in order to, to help water? So Jesus has humbled himself. He's in need of food and drink here, and he's allowed others to be completely in charge of that. Now, interestingly, we don't read that he actually gets a drink in this passage. I'm sure he does eventually, but we don't see any water show up for him. Not a problem, but, but Paul had learned that same commitment in his following Jesus, right? In, in 2 Corinthians 11, he's not complaining, but he's listing you know, the job description for you know, apostolic gospel spreading. Uh, and he says of himself, I was in weariness and toil, in sleepness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So it shouldn't surprise us. We should, be, we should be prepared for that. Now, verse eight had said that the disciples left, and you might ask yourself, well, how do we have this account if the disciples left? Well, two options. I mean, this is an extremely personal unpacking of this life. Two things happened. Either Jesus recounted it to the disciples in their debrief, because as you know, even when they're there, they don't hear much of what happens or understand much of what happens, so they're going to talk after, right? And you'll see that uh, in, in, I think it's verse uh, 27, when they re-enter the scene, they have questions that they don't ask in that moment. So it's very possible that Jesus just explains to them every single word that was spoken and all of the detail. But it's also very possible that the 
residents of Sychar who are soon going to come flooding out to meet this truth teller because of the testimony of the woman, it's very possible that when they ask Jesus to stay two additional days, that she recounts it to everybody. I mean, she seems a, a compelling conveyor of her transformation. And so it's quite possible that that's how we have it. But it's very personal. I mean, you, it's, you're sitting right there for the whole thing. Verse nine, <clears throat> then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now can I ask you, does that read a little different now, having refreshed that, that angst? I think for me, I read it and read it and it just goes by, but when I read it now, I, oh, okay, understatement of the year, right? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, but Jesus is a Jew, and he's, he's chosen to have this dealing, right? He's not like any of the others. How does she know he's a Jew? Probably a combination of his mode of dress and his dialect, right? He would have probably worn a, a prayer shawl and had tallit, the, the tassels that the woman uh, who had the faith to reach out and touch the hem of his garment probably was dressed differently than a Samaritan. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the gift of God you know, was declared in just in the chapter before um, as, as the demonstration of God's love. He so loved that he gave his son. Um, whoever believes won't perish but have everlasting life. Romans speaks of, in comparison to the, the sin death that we've earned, compares that to the free gift of God, eternal life. And so clearly Jesus is that gift. But also the Holy Spirit is listed as a, as a gift, a promised gift. Peter in Acts 2.38 says, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Also later in Acts 10, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Again, Jesus is the gift of life, and he brings with him all the fullness and blessing of salvation into our lives. He declared that he would send us the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. He's the gift that she didn't know, and it's He's the who that she needed to know. And so in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? Again, she's claiming in this moment when it's convenient to have connection to Jacob, but at other times, you know, the, the Samaritans would distance themselves. But it, interesting, Jesus didn't really choose to pursue that. You remember Jacob had a dream. Jacob had a dream that there was a ladder from earth to heaven, and, who, and she's talking to the ladder. Jesus didn't really choose to use that as a way to connect. He didn't, I think he didn't validate that connection because it was a weak connection, it was an aberrant one. But he doesn't leave her without a way forward. Um, 
And she's acknowledging this blessing of the well, the practical, physical, life-giving water that this village has had. But she's also trying to peg where Jesus fits. She's, trying, she's disoriented, rightly so, very intentionally by Jesus. And she's trying to figure out, who am I talking to? Who is this? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And you know, I, I want us to just stop there for a second. I don't know if we always know this, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it. Uh, the things that God has created, even the things that he's set forth as intentional blessings for us, they don't suffice in themselves. Any experience you can have, any relationship you can have on this earth it's gonna still leave you thirsty. Whether it's well water or the satisfaction of being able to work and, and uh, provide for your family, the blessing of friendship, the marriage relationship itself. Apart from Jesus, those don't quench. Do we know that? And, and I ask because I don't know if we always do. I know there was a season when I didn't, when, when my wife Angie and I were first married, though we were spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, you know, goofy young people, intent on loving each other, the Lord had to show us very specifically that he was our satisfaction. This was a blessing. This was from him, and it was a kindness to us. But if we looked to it to, to satisfy, if I looked to her to fill the thirst that I had, guess what? I would choke the life out of her, literally. And vice versa. If she were looking to me as her primary satisfaction, she'd end up always thirsty, always short of the mark. So it's a blessing the Lord intends, and it can bless, it does bless. Receive those blessings into your life, but if you take your focus off of Jesus as the source of your thirst quenching, you're gonna to begin to strive and you're gonna to begin to struggle with all of the things around you. And this is, this is kind of what this woman has experienced, as we'll see. She's, she's looked for satisfaction from things that can't satisfy. That's not fair. As a, as a husband and wife, it's not fair to expect him to be to you all that Jesus is. And it's not fair for you to expect her to provide a satisfaction that only your Messiah can. We need to know that as husbands and wives or future husbands and wives. Verse 14, Jesus continues and, and declares, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, this is the contrast, will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And where does this blessing that Jesus offers flow from? She's asked that, and he doesn't really answer her. So, I hope you'll pardon me, I'm not gonna provide you know, the living water hydrologic chart for you to, I don't know, I don't know. It's the Lord. It's the source of all blessing in life. It's the Lord. She's asking a fair question, but Jesus doesn't give her a direct answer. I'm what you need. I'm what you need, he's telling her. You know, Job, Job didn't know where lightning, snow, and hail came from either, so, you know, it's okay, right? He isn't answering her specific question, but what does he do? What does he do? He describes what living water does. And he convinces her, I have it, you need it, 
as evidenced by the broken life we're about to see. I have it, you need it, and if you come to me in truth, I'll provide it to you, and you'll be able to give it to others. That's what he does. That, that's what we need to know about living water. I don't know where it comes from. I knew when I didn't have it, and I, and I knew when I did, and everything changed, just like for her. Verse 15, the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And you know, th- there's, a, there's a degree to which she's ready at this point. She's, she's ready to trade up. She's seen what this life has without Jesus, and she's weary of it. We'll see more in a minute, but, but she's weary, and Jesus wants you to ask, right? He, he needs you to recognize how deep your need is, and so have you asked? Have you asked him for living water? It's available. It's there for you, but you have to ask. He requires that we recognize our thirst before he satisfies us. And he meets us like this Samaritan woman. He meets us when we're, when we're tired of drawing from earthly wells. Um, it reminds me of the Lord speaking to his people in Jeremiah 2. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Right? This, this is what happens inevitably if you leave the Lord There's nothing for you that will satisfy. And this is what the the Jewish people had done. And again, uh, in Isaiah, the Lord cries out to his people in Isaiah 5, 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. And uh, you can hear the weariness in her and and you can hear the weariness in that. This This is the result of a life lived without the one who quenches thirst. It's weary, it's heavy dragging, and it doesn't satisfy. You have the things, maybe you have the relationship or the job or the this or the that, but you have thirst that you don't understand. She was sufficiently tired, and and I'll ask us, are we sufficiently tired? Weary of pretending. Maybe you're tired of the things you've permitted yourself to partake of things that are, you think are okay or acceptable because of this reason or that hurt or this deeply felt need. No, just come to Jesus. Those things aren't quenching your thirst, are they? You have to be honest with yourself. They're not. Again, this woman's desire for a lifetime companion to walk through life with and to share herself, that's from the Lord. That's a, it's not a bad desire. But if you seek it or probably worse if you acquire it outside of his provision and outside of his leading and control in your life, not, not a blessing, not a blessing at all. So are we ready? Uh, if you don't know him, if you're not being quenched by him, are you ready to admit that despite maybe heroic efforts on your part to self-satisfy, that you're thirstier now than when you started? This is the Samaritan woman. Maybe this is you. It was me. It's not now, but it was. Maybe that's you. And if it is, Jesus wants to have this same conversation with you. Right? He just wants to quench your thirst if you'll recognize it and if you'll let him. Jesus is about to take her into some, um, some sticky waters, graciously. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus brings her into some redemptive reasoning. Right? He says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Now this, this extended conversation he's been having with her is very countercultural. It would not have been normal for a, a Jewish man to speak to a woman in public. The religious leaders wouldn't do it at all. Um, Jesus does it here. It's not sinfully inappropriate. It's just not normal. So at this point, to call the husband, it's not a bad, not a bad call, but Jesus is doing more than that, isn't he? He's not, being, he's not being culturally relevant. He's calling her forth, right? The woman answers and said, I have no husband. Technically true. If you have children, you're familiar with this. Right? Well, it isn't untrue. It's just not the whole truth. It's just some truth. It's a true thing. But she, but she says it. I have no husband. And Jesus is going to extend mercy to anyone who will humble themselves. Right? We need to. We need to place our hand on the head of the sacrifice. And she's in that process. And again, I, this is, I think, a place where the enemy has uh, such a field day. It seems like this coming to open declaration of our sinful failure is, we think it's the worst thing. We think it's, um, you know, confession before a holy God, worst moment possible. I'm fully exposed. I'm fully vulnerable. I'm completely accountable. You know how you and others may choose to strive against it, and yet, it's exactly what we need. We need to run towards the Lord. It's the only freedom, it's the only release into real life that we can have, right? We have to come to that place, a place of humility for life to begin. And here, as Jesus begins to pull this away, there's, there's a trickle of life for her. She's, the water's beginning to flow. Jesus very clearly says in verse 17, You have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And again, it's just a kind, gentle confrontation, isn't it? It's just, you know, I love that we don't learn why she had five, because I don't think we would do well with that. I don't, I don't, I think we'd be distracted with it. It would, it would end up being a book of some sort that we don't need. She's thirsty. She's tried five times, and we don't know why it didn't work. We don't know if it's her, if it's him, if it's both. I don't know. But she's apart from the Lord, and she's thirsty. And and again, shouldn't surprise us to see the one who gives his children the Holy Spirit ability to walk in a word of knowledge, to himself walk in it when the Father declares it. He's just declaring what he knows. Jamie reminded us Sunday Hebrews 4:13 There's no creature hidden from his sight all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and there's a day coming when that perfect knowledge when everything that unsaved men and women have done or left undone is going to be revealed publicly and is going to be met with the full force of the wrath of the lamb there is that day coming that is not this day for her by God's grace. That's not what she experiences because she humbles herself. The woman says to him in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
none of whom the Samaritans read, but she knows that there are prophets. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. You know, now she's maybe reverting to discussion about religious observance, stuff that she's no doubt heard from the people around her her whole life. Maybe she's just thinking, well, if I've got an audience with a prophet, living water giver, at least I'm going to get an answer. Which one is it? Well, which one is it? This mountain or Jerusalem? Maybe it's a smokescreen and she's just trying to confuse the conversation and move away from a very uncomfortable area. I don't know. I'm, I'm encouraged to set my own heart graciously towards these kinds of conversations. Am I merciful in a moment like this? Do I give someone space to, uh, to press further with truth? You know, we get so easy to get in an argument. But Jesus isn't content to just tell her where to worship, is he? He's gonna, he's gonna change her into a place of worship. It's not about Jerusalem or Gerizim. It's about her own heart. Maybe that's been a conversation that's been in your life at some point where watching other people wrangle about religious stuff has just put you off of the whole thing. They're just worrying about details and I've seen their life and it's really not that attractive. I don't know. Don't let that put you off of the the fountain of living waters because that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in bringing worship to your heart, to making the change that makes you a worshiper. Jesus says, woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, at the temple, worship the Father. Well, where is it then? If, if it's not, you know, where, where is it that Jews and Samaritans and Lynchburgers worship? And again, it's, it's from the heart of one redeemed, right? If, if you've declared your need and received your fulfillment in Jesus, that's the place of worship. That's where worship comes from. That's where it's lifted to the Father. And she gets more sobering news in verse 22. Um, Jesus has told her that her worship future is a little uncertain, an hour is coming, and now is. And and he tells her now that her past really is not so certain worship-wise. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. It's not easy to hear you're an ignorant worshiper. It's just not. Probably even harder for her to hear that your worship is ignorant and Jewish worship isn't. That was probably agonizing to hear. Yet, it's the truth that she needs to hear, isn't it? He lovingly brings her to, he's not being unkind, but he's lovingly bringing her to a place where she can look at her past and recognize this was worthless. Maybe some of you have been in that place or are in that place where in order to receive Jesus, you would have to take a hard look and say, you know what, I think I've been an ignorant worshiper. Some people will choose never to receive Jesus living water because of that. Could I challenge you? Don't let that be you. Right? There's no shame in it. You only know what you know until the Lord reveals truth. She only knew what a Samaritan woman knew until Jesus came and made a stop and opened her heart. So the question is, what do you do once you know? Do you continue to worship ignorantly? 
I would say don't. I would say, like Paul, let all of your religious zeal and past accomplishment in whatever structure you came from be the dung that Paul declared it to be when he found Jesus. Let him satisfy your thirst. Don't worry about it. Those where to worship questions, those what do I have to wear, those this day or that day, that's not the heart of the Messiah, is it? He wants worshipers that worship him wherever they are going to reach others that don't know him. That's what he's doing. Verse 23, he continues, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is sent of the Father, specific works that the Lord directed him to. He's trekked there, wearied himself, pushed through her difficulty in order to bring her a a drink of living water. And and he says, now is when true true worshipers will worship. And she's about to worship. She's maybe a few hours away from her first expression of worship. Jesus enters and worship changes forever. Um, And again, yeah. She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things, which is exactly what Jesus is doing right now. He's telling her all things, right? She could be credited that she knew Messiah is coming, but you know the, the atrophied Messiah that she had in mind is not who sits before her tired asking for a drink. Maybe she even thought, well, Messiah is coming and he'll tell you that worship's supposed to be here in Gerizim. But Jesus sort of preempts that when he says to her, I who, I who speak to you am he. And if she'll take hold of that, eternity changes for her. And if you'll take hold of that, eternity changes for you. I who speak to you am he. I'll, I'll close this here without getting to the rest of the passage, but at this point, the disciples return. It's abrupt and clumsy. This is the last recorded words that we have between Jesus and her. What do you think she does? She leaves without her water pot, right? She came for earthly water, doesn't get it, doesn't give Jesus any, leaves without the water pot, and yet she's become a vessel of living water herself, right? It's the first thing she does. This woman of, you know, sullied reputation, you know, we read, uh, she goes out and immediately speaks to the men, right? Verse 28, she left her water pot, went her way to the city and says, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So they went out of the city and came to him. You know, it's interesting to me, she didn't know the Psalms. She didn't know that it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, but that's what she's doing. She didn't need to be, it's not a religious observance for her, it's an act of worship. It's the response of a redeemed soul. Yes, we should respond to the Lord and proclaim him wherever we go because he's urged us to, but if, if I'm in touch with all I've been forgiven, isn't that the life that my life should be? 
Is mine a come-see-a-man life? That's the question. Is our fellowship a come-see-a-man fellowship? Are, Are we, like her, willing to be completely open about who we were before we had a drink of living water? Right? All that shame left behind. All the futility left behind. But we're alive now. And we know why we're alive. To serve him. And then blessings are a blessing. Right? We've been entrusted with life to proclaim to others. Are we going to go? Are we going to go where he went? Just a few other application thoughts and I, I promise I'll close us. But are we going to seek these people out? Are we, are we willing to push past arrogance, ignorance? Are we, are we willing to patiently work through the discomfort of you know, distorted lives in order to make sure they drink at the well? That's what he's called us to. That's what he's empowered us for. That's what we come together to celebrate. And I would just encourage us again, let's go. Let me pray for us. Um, the pastors will be here. If you have specific needs, we'd love to lift those before the Lord with you. You're welcome to come here and pray. If you need to run out and get kids, that's okay. We totally understand that. But what a blessing to be connected to living water. Father, we, uh, we do... We want to humble ourselves, Lord. We want to recognize uh, your desire to use us to make you known. Father, we want to rejoice in that regardless of what it reveals about who we were when we were dead. Who cares? I pray, Father, that you'd continue to stir among us those who um, who are redeemed and who will say so. Lord, those who... um, have walked out of darkness and into life. Lord, those who've drunk at the well, please uh, continue to fill us, Lord. Minister to us. Have mercy on us in that, Lord. We just entrust ourselves to you in a fresh way. Lord, do this work. We can't do this, Lord, but it's what happens when you do, when you, when you satisfy our thirst, Lord. Just make us ready for it, we ask. We trust in the name of Jesus. Amen.